London News Station. This is 7 News at 5. A massive mess along Alligator Alley today. Thousands of people from all across the country all headed to the Everglades to hear the group Fish perform for New Year's. And that concert is happening at the Big Cypress Indian Reservation, which is right at mile marker 38 along the alley. And 7th Lynn Gordon is out there talking to people stuck in the traffic. Lynn? Well, Lori, if you don't have to be out here, you definitely do not want to be out here. We are four miles east of the Alligator Alley toll booth. And just take a look at some of this traffic. Actually, it's To say that there was nothing else like Fish's Big Cypress Festival happening on December 31st, 1999, doesn't quite capture it. Its scale alone, 75,000 audience members plus an estimated 5,000 in support, put it in a class by itself. Welcome to After Midnight, Fish's Big Cypress Festival, brought to you by Osiris. My name is Jesse Jarno. In this episode, we'll explore another of Fish's remarkable feats to throw the biggest ticketed event anywhere in the world on New Year's 1999 and yet remain almost completely off the mainstream's radar. In this episode, we'll hear from Fish members Trey Anastasio and John Fishman, manager John Paluska, festival designers Russ Bennett and Lars Fisk, and many others, including survivors of the traffic jam on Alligator Alley. New Year's Eve 1999 may well mark the biggest collective artist's payday in the history of live music, the Los Angeles Times observed in December, cataloging an impressive list of undersold concerts throughout the country. Sales for Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden were called sluggish, Ditto Gloria Estefan's show in nearby Miami. In L.A., not even the triple bill of the Eagles, Jackson Brown, and Linda Ronstadt was able to sell out the Staples Center. The Los Angeles Times roundup mentioned fish, sure, deigning to mention their two-night campout near the article's very bottom, tucked between Alice Cooper's appearance at Cooperstown, his Phoenix sports bar, and B.J. Thomas's gig at a regional airport. Fish had so far hosted their far-off festivals during the summer, a traditional time of far-away trips. The band had long been clear about their desire to stay off the radar and bring their fans with them. They'd played two festivals in Limestone, Maine, a destination so far to the northeast it was nearly in another time zone. But doing so on New Year's Eve 1999 certainly drove the point home, or, more to the point, very far from home. Fish were trying to find someplace new. And what better time than now? In some ways, Big Cypress would be Fish's last almost fully off-grid festival. By the time of their next major festival venture four years later, cell phones had transformed communication. Festival sites were no longer sealed off from the modern world going on outside, but just another note in it. The last days of the 20th century may have been the last moment for Fish, or any band, to realize a large-scale creative space truly removed from the culture at large. But it was Fish who did it. Former road manager Brad Sands knew that it would be a big task. We had kind of perfected the Air Force Base airport type thing. So this was like not that, you know. So it, was, it brought a whole new set of challenges. Plus it wasn't in the Northeast. It wasn't New England, you know, it wasn't like in our backyard where we could like, you know, in Maine and, and Plattsburgh, I think we must have went to that site 
10 times before we actually got, you know, it was more, yeah, there wasn't like the airports provided such a unique, easy way to like lay out the whole thing. Cause it's like, you have these massive runways and you put the venue on one of them, you put the camping in between on one of, you know, and this is literally just a grass, like, you know, grass, marshy swamp that you just had to figure out the, you know, the layout and then basically build it, you know? We didn't have the roads and the campgrounds and all that kind of stuff. They weren't there, you know? It made manager John Paluska remember the Air Force bases fondly. These air bases actually had a substantial amount of existing infrastructure that we were able to put to our disposal. Buildings and power and, you know, as I mentioned, huge amount of very high-quality, perfect-condition asphalt and... Um, just a lot of infrastructure. There were Air Force bases, you know? Um, and whereas the Big Cypress show was basically literally in a cow field. Um, there was no electricity. Fish guitarist Trey Anastasio remembered it much the same way. There was no infrastructure at all. None. Um, they laid out a gridded New York City-style city streets for the camping and everybody had so much space they could car camp which I remember there was a, a lot of pride in that because it makes people's experience so much more comfortable and people almost had like a front yard there was enough space there but they had to go and plant uh, plant grass and push the alligators back a little bit everybody kept saying don't go in the woods because there's alligators four feet back it was a temporary autonomous zone right down to bringing their own source of power and though Fish had never advertised it as such, the festival they were planning was arguably a great destination for anybody worried about what would be coming at the stroke of midnight. What made it so uh, cool in some ways was, as you recall, you know, there was so much hype about Y2K and the whole grid's going to go down and all these things that weren't programmed properly to, you know, turn over to 2000 were going to malfunction and chaos was going to ensue. And here we were in a sovereign nation in the middle of the Florida Everglades, completely off the grid. We were unsusceptible. We were in our own private Idaho down there. We had, we had to generate our own power. We had to build all of our internal infrastructure from scratch, uh, which included, I think we built 14 miles of roads. Promoter Dave Worland recalled it similarly. We knew the Y2K thing would never be a problem. We're, we're going to have our own, our own generators, our own power, our own hospital, our own radio station to communicate. We'll have all of these things. So we don't care. So it was like being in an oasis. Yeah, we basically built sort of a, <clears throat> a classic gridded city um, with these roads, and we built them out of oyster shells primarily, which is what they used to build crushed oyster shells, which they used to build roads down there. They make great roads because they drain really well, and they're sturdy. Um, so yeah, we had to build those roads. We had the electricity. We had to bring in all the water. Given the unique circumstances of that night, it was in some ways, it almost kind of felt like an advantage in the sense that we were completely insulated. For drummer John Fishman, the possibility of alligators made it even better. You know, John and everybody at Dionysian and all of the, and all the people at the, at the, in the Seminole tribe and all of these people working to make to create a venue space that that could harbor all the musical idealism and all of the crowds, you know, 
the ideal situation that a crowd could possibly be in, other than the alligators. But you gotta have like some element of danger, you know? Like everything is this is perfect and ideal, except there are alligators. <laughs> That's the one catch. <laughs> The one catches you're wandering around on hallucinogenics, you might want to keep that in the back of your mind that they're on the perimeter, there might be an alligator. But other than that, you know, that's kind of the perfect, even that is like kind of the, like, you, how, you can even dream that up as the one potential downside. <laughs> you know? For fish manager John Paluska, the hard part wasn't the details, so much as the fact that the location was even further away than usual. So our office still was in Vermont, and our promoter was based in Massachusetts. And a lot of the people who, um, a lot of the people who uh, were his core people were Northeast based. So anytime in in the months leading up to it, anytime we, we needed to do a site visit or something, it was a much bigger deal than just jumping in our car and going to one of these other locations or just booking a small private plane or something. It was a it was a multi-hour flight and a bigger ordeal. Um, so that was hard. And, you know, once everybody got down there and began the big final push, it didn't matter where we were because they were just there for the duration. By December, Fish's team began to converge in Big Cypress. Margie Blee of Great Northeast Productions was among the first on site. We happened to be doing two fish shows in Portland, um, and we did those two shows, and I flew out, I, I guess maybe like somewhere around December 9th, and I spent a month, which was the longest amount of time I had spent on any site, on that site. I was just really excited to get started in building, but it was, you know, whenever we get to those, whenever we get to a site, it's a blank slate, and then everything starts uh, being built, and uh, from the, we, we actually happen to be over by where the rodeo, the rodeo area was, so our... <laughs> Our offices in the very beginning, where all, everybody's office was, was um, right next to all the animals. So that was really interesting and very different for a festival. It was remarkable to put on an independent rock festival on Seminole land, a sovereign nation inside the Florida Everglades. Fish had always sought to have complete control over their festivals in such a manner that the audience entered into some kind of liminal space that bent the rules of a traditional rock concert. But now... With Big Cypress, in a legal way, Fish were enacting what the social theorist Hakeem Bey called a temporary autonomous zone, a place outside the usual boundaries of societal control, a combination of seminal sovereignty and what exactly Fish carried with them. the chance to meet someone from northeastern Vermont, odds are high that they're only one or two degrees of separation removed from the bread and puppet theater of Glover, Vermont. That is, if they never actually donned the troops' strange masks and marched at one of their protests or resurrection circuses or Sunday picnics. Established on New York's Lower East Side as an avant-garde street theater troupe in the early 1960s, founder Peter Schumann led the troupe back to his native Europe before landing in Vermont in the early 1970s. It was there that they took up residency at Goddard College, the tiny experimental institution where fish would gestate in the mid-1980s. 
By then, Bread and Puppet had moved up the road, but their artistic influence over the region loomed large. They were both politically radical and unabashedly abstract. Their enormous puppets commented on the state of the world and occasionally hit the road to appear at protests. Susan Bettman was a founding member of the troupe, moving with them from the Lower East Side to Vermont and points between. She described the evolution of Bread and Puppet's enormous summer pageant, the Resurrection Circus, often attended by members of Fish, and an influence on their own festivals. They did pageants at, at um, Kate Farm in Plainfield, and there was a huge farm field. There was this huge green field, and, and um, access to the river and access down a pretty steep hillside and um, so they, they used all of the access points for entrances for, for puppets and groups of puppets. Well, the pageants from 75 to basically to 98 were um, in this huge uh, gravel pit in Glover, and it, and it sort of was the same concept except for no river, and, and the hills weren't quite so steep, but people would, um, puppets would come from, you know, it was sort of global, they, they would come from 360 degree entrances, and, um, and it was astonishing um, and uh, inspiring, and people would sit on the hillside around around the gravel pit. Um, so they were a little higher than most of the action. And what that meant was that when they were watching the entrances of, of different groups of puppets, they were also able to see the sky and, and the trees that lined the outside of the field. So... You, you had a sense of of being completely in in nature and and totally having the opportunity to appreciate it. Um, so you know you'd be watching clouds and you'd be watching birds and and at the same time you'd be watching these strange puppets doing you know their dances. So it was. Um, I, I, that would that would be enough to inspire anybody. But fish are, you know, they have been a really creative group. So um, I think they took the best of of what they saw to to carry on, and they did it in their own way. The countercultural gatherings at Goddard College's Kate Farm began to build their own kind of following. In '75, the audiences were about, you know, maybe. Three or four hundred people. So between that beginning and um, when it hit the the eighties and nineties, um, and the audiences grew to thirty thousand people over two days, um, there was yeah, there was definitely an evolution um, as word spread. You know, it became the the thing to do if you were a certain kind of hippie culture-oriented type person. What Fish took from Bread and Puppet wasn't the political messaging. The Bread and Puppet's politics perhaps seeped into Fish in other ways. 
What transmitted from the bread and puppet summer pageants to the fish summer pageants were senses of pacing, quiet, and the vastness of space. Rock festivals were constant barrages of sound. Fish festivals had quiet built into them, along with weird art and surreal architecture, a temporary autonomous zone without an overt agenda. John Paluska remembered the ways they attempted to build that into the fish festivals. I think the basic thinking behind giving people space and you know quiet time like that is it's just a palate cleanser if you will you know or a chance to refresh um the the band played a lot of music at their festivals they played three sets each day for two days in the case of big cypress it was even more music yeah i think there's just a general feeling of the music they play will be more impactful if people are experiencing it with with their you know without already being saturated every time we want to walk on stage we want people hungry to hear music and and not feeling the slightest bit kind of um worn down you know we want them to go regenerate and then come back and um be ready to consume it with all of their attention yeah, or just explore some of these super cool art, artistic in, installations that all of our friends created or go listen to the radio station. That weird art and the general vibe came from the Vermont artists Russ Bennett and Lars Fisk. Russ Bennett is an actual veteran of Bread and Puppet, a one-time drummer in their ragtag marching band. But he's done a lot of things. Starting with Fish's Clifford Ball in 1996... Russ Bennett has built an unlikely career as a shaper of festival experiences, one of the masterminds behind the design of Bonnaroo. John Paluska loved Bennett's work on Ball Square at the original Clifford Ball. Uh, Russ Bennett had long his, had a long history with Bread and Puppet. He uh, played in the Bread and Puppet band. He was just sort of one of the original kind of OG Bread and Puppet guys um, and was involved in building some of their stuff. He's a great creative builder, and creative mind and sort of a, a, a great example of someone who's both very practical and can get a ton of work done and also has the creative muse completely at play while he's doing it. Uh, it's a rare combination. Former road manager Brad Sands also remembers Russ Bennett fondly. He was, you know, kind of a mad wizard type genius, you know, with his long white hair. Photographer Danny Clinch has encountered Bennett's creations many times over the years. You know, Russ Bennett always enables the fans to have, like, a great experience that they're not expecting. And he's a guy who understands all these little bits of storytelling and um, interactive, uh, uh, you know, moments are, are so important to people. And, you know, you hear it today that people said like, you know, look, it's about the experience. You know, it's experiential is a new word, right? And, you know, Russ Bennett and Fish were like, were like the pioneers of that shit, you know? With his Vermont background, Bennett was another example of Fish drawing in somebody far away from the rock and roll world and transforming it. He's pretty easy to spot at festivals, looking exactly like the kind of bearded festival mastermind who might roll with the Bread and Puppet marching band and be capable of fabricating small cities out of thin air. But while Russ Bennett is perhaps easier to spot, it was Lars Fisk's design that gave Fish's festivals their surrealistic bent. A graduate of UVM, Fisk's studio across the street from Fish's office 
proved to be an excellent location. And from the Clifford Ball onwards, he became one of the band's main visual collaborators. They certainly loved to engage in the brainstorming. We would uh, get together and, at a meeting table and, and just talk about some of the, the raw notions for the thing. But, um, but they were always very open to, uh, very accepting of whatever wild outlandish ideas were, were thrown out there. A lot of the idea generation was shared between everybody, certainly Russ and myself. But he was really very much responsible for the actual building of much of what we did there, whereas I was more functioning as a designer and um, and um, a larger overarching concept sort of guy. I think what I was able to contribute was more of the the presence of the erratic object or nonsensical bit of architecture. When Big Cypress rolled around, Bennett, Fisk, and the band had spent a lot of time thinking about the headier points of festival staging. By then, we'd uh, done a number of festivals, so had a much better understanding of the band, working with the band and band management and uh, their viewpoints on art and all of that, you know, how do we, oftentimes the conversation would at some point or another lead to where is the line and should there be a line between art and the appreciator, you know, um, how do we, how do we sort of create an environment that's completely, uh, osmosis-like? Why do people who live in a first world country choose to go live in a sort of semi-third world environment? Um, and it's in part because they're living together at a higher level than they do in their daily lives. Russ Bennett and Lars Fisk had worked with Fish on four festivals before, but only over the summer. I mean, New Year's is, is uh, a funny thing because it's a given exact point in time which is the um, which is the peak moment, and it's already self-created. Um, so moving that moment around was one of the things we we talked about and ended up doing, sort of slowing down time, running into running into the beginning of the next century. I mean, it was Y2K. It was the end of an entire century. Um, are all the computers going to stop working? What does that mean? Will the planes fall out of the sky? There was all this fear about Y2K and all this kind of jazz. What's going to happen as people were getting more dependent on computers was, well, maybe we would just have all the lights go out <laughs> um, because we could control everything because it was all generated and, you know, all of like that. It wasn't even attached to a grid. course the reality of that is it would be dark some people might panic it might take 20 minutes for the lights to come back on this could be a horrible experience <laughs> uh, 
Um, so, you know, stupid ideas happen. Brilliant ideas happen, too. Like the band's improvisation, the design of the festival was the result of a long-running conversation. Trey remembered the brainstorming fondly, including an amazing vision that never quite came to pass. A couple of the really cool Big Cypress ideas were very, in retrospect, organic, human, hopefully. So one of them was to make the venue round, which we did. And the cool thing about that was we wanted everybody to lose their sense of perspective. And I think it worked. I mean, you were there, but I'll meet you over there on the wall. And you're like, where? It's all, you're in this. I just think a circle is powerful. And was, then this was a great idea. We were going to make all the walls out of ice, giant blocks of ice. And that went for a while that we tried. And Lars Fisk, the genius, I'm sorry to embarrass him by saying that, but he, I just adore him. And he's so smart. Who does all the art for the festivals and, and Russ Bennett. So I think it was his idea to have ice walls that would so you'd walk in the first day and there'd be a circular ice palace that this concert started in by the last day there'd be no walls at all they just melt and they tried and there was like the ice blocks were sticking together and it was too hot and they couldn't transport them and they finally gave up but i thought that was a cool idea his whole thing was like he was like it's gonna be opaque in the beginning you can't see through ice you're gonna be walking into this like ice palace and it's just gonna gonna go And then the sun would come up and it would just be no venue. The the sun sets on the all-night set and you're in a venue. And the sun rises and it's just gone. Though the ice walls didn't come to be, their attempt to actually build them is an excellent example of Lars Fisk and Russ Bennett's perfectly Vermont combination of conceptualism and practicality. The walls are really just emotional boundaries. Um, You know, they're like Les Nessman's duct tape. Um, don't, Don't cross over into here. Um, and we put all the logistics together for that and got an ice company to deliver the ice, and we were experimented with putting, at the time, very fancy um, colored LED rope light in there so it would, you know, be really interesting at night. And the company that uh, I contracted with had promised they had 10 trucks to deliver the stuff, you know, and we'd deliver it overnight, and we had dry ice and all that kind of jazz to put on top of it so it would stay for a while. And then the trick would be, when the show was over, the wall would be gone. Um, But they ended up only having a couple of trucks, and the turnaround from Miami was too long, and this and that and the other thing. If walls are emotional boundaries... The infrastructure of a music festival is slightly more tangible, with a host of challenges all its own, especially in a swamp. Fish manager John Paluska knew about festival infrastructure, but had some other lessons to learn. Once we got on site, at that point, the the, the more the more interesting issue was all of the natural areas of concern in terms of pests and hazards that we were encountering that we never had to deal with in the Northeast. Um, fire ants or well, alligators for sure, and uh, you know that that sort of culminated with an eleven foot alligator showing up backstage. One of the, I think it was after the band had arrived. It was like right before we really got into the lead up to the show. So we had to get some alligator wrangler to pull an eleven foot alligator out of the backstage area. That was interesting. <laughs> uh, that was a big alligator. Um, but also, yeah, just snakes and fire ants and all these other things that we were sort of having to constantly be mindful of down there. 
it's, you know, it's the Everglades. Um, uh, and the, the terrain there was kind of, you know, just different and, and all that. Promoter Dave Worland had a plan for that. Fire ants uh, are a big problem in South Florida, and um, there, it was, there were a lot of fire ants on that property, and we were very worried about people camping um, and being exposed to them because they have very nasty, stingy bites. So um, we spent thirty, forty thousand dollars having the area sprayed uh, a couple of times to make sure that we would keep their their population down. We couldn't eliminate all of them, and there were some people that that had to be treated. But we certainly, you know, dealt with a lot of that. And then it was up to Russ Bennett, Lars Fisk, and crew to make the terrain inhabitable for fish heads. Here's Lars. Well, most of all of our, our building and construction and fabrication of all these things occurred right on site. So we were there for quite a, quite a while, uh, settled in with a big crew of builders and set painters and scenic designers uh, of all kinds. And we, we made it happen right there on site. We routinely bought out the entire supply of plywood in, in a radius of hundreds of miles each each time we put on one of these festivals. Well, it was just amazing again to be to be on Seminole land. And when we were there during the time of production, which amounted to um, a couple of months, uh, we were we were really in, really engaged with that community the everglades is you know it's a sea of grass it's a it's a sea of water of moving water and because it's been manipulated by the army corps of engineers and channels and all this kind of stuff being made in the wildness of it all and there are there there were these waterways that we could um that we ended up using one as sort of the, the little river and building a, a city, a faux little city along that, which is exactly opposite of what it is. We were there making stuff for five weeks. So uh, the boardwalk and all of that, which was populated with performers and you know artists of all kinds, it was lively, was great on the one side. Uh, we had cleared out... Uh, this land had been cattle land before before we were on it so there were lots of uh, remains of cattle out there and and in this one wooded area we raked it all out cleaned it all out and um, just piled all the bones up around the trees and then just lit it with red light so you could see in there at the night and uh, one of the things that was really nice is the owls didn't realize we could see them. <laughs> uh, so I remember looking, you know, like right at an owl uh, in the nighttime there. And we, um, visual design people, there was quite a bunch of us. It was quite a big crew. We stayed on the reservation in um, in Little Chiquis. That there, there was a, um, an animal preserve there. So we stayed right in that part of it. It got cold a few nights because it was... They weren't heated or anything. And it was really great living that close to the land in that way. You know, it was a bit like camping, really. Um, 
so, any, yeah, there was a lot of wonderful memories like that. My, my experience with the tribe and with uh, uh, Chief Billy um, was fantastic. Uh, Chief Billy, for some reason, took a little bit of a shine to me, and, uh, you know, we'd go up for a ride in his helicopter, and, you know, he'd tell stories and, and talk about stuff, and there were times where we'd hang out. They were really very supportive. Visual designer Lars Fisk remembers the Big Cypress construction being similar to some previous festivals, but utterly unlike others. Part of it was what was became really fascinating for me was was working alongside the Seminoles and um, picking up on some of their traditions and and ways. Uh, for example, the Chiki is a, a traditional Seminole structure. It's a sort of a thatched hut of sorts and made by um, harvesting palm fronds from from the from the, the from the jungle and using them to weave together these domiciles. So I sort of incorporated that that sort of design in making what I call the personal chickies. So these were these are small these small uh, small huts that were meant to accommodate just one or two people at a time. They offered to teach us uh, this this way of building. So we found ourselves out in the swamp one day with a big big truck and a, and a whole crew of these guys, and uh, we were shown how to harvest the palm fronds by whacking away at the at the the, the young growth with a machete and so we're out there and and then in the midst of the, the sounds of the whacking and 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 snapping of these palm fronds comes this booming voice which interrupted the work and it was coming from one of the one of the, the tribesmen who was who had sort of entered into this sort of chant or this prayer that uh to the to the gods of of the jungle or or to the palm frond it was kind of a reverent moment to hear this this sort of prayer and and it um it just kind of stuck with me and as a as a memory of great memory of that whole experience seminal liaison pete gallagher watched the art emerge in jack motlow's cow pasture there were giant paper airplanes in a tree in one section of swamp, it looked like a missile had fallen from the sky. <clears throat> they created like swamp-looking uh, cypress leaf, uh, I mean palmetto thatch, like uh, characters that just stood there. Uh, people would pose with them, you know, like, like almost like big giant muppets. And um, uh, and they, these these things were all designed, draw, drawn out, and. Uh, uh, I mean, it's, it, it's, it was a very elaborate, uh, and we had, you know, of course, they had to get all kinds of permissions, which I helped them get, you know, from the state and for the, from the federal government, the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs, you know, the, uh, the county up there, the, uh, you know, because everyone was worried about a bunch of hippies, you know, coming in, what are they going to do, you know? The way I remember it, there was an agreement made that, that a certain number of jobs would be created with the people on the reservation. And a lot of people worked very closely with all the artists and all the, because it was an insane amount of work. 
They built roads. They had a medicine man named uh, uh, Sonny Billy, who actually was James Billy's uh, uh, stepfather. And he was a very powerful medicine man, but he made his living as a driving a bulldozer. So he, he did a lot of the um, bulldozer work that needed to be done, him and his sons. Um, of course, um, they, they hired a bunch of the Indians just to, you know, whether it was uh, building things, setting out chairs, uh, you know, just uh, um, the, the Seminole police were out there, but they were very, very... Uh, he wanted him. They, he wanted them to stay in the background and only react if there was an emergency or something. You know. Promoter Dave Worland remembers nothing but assistance from Seminole police. Obviously, it didn't elude us that we knew going on sovereign land gave us a lot of benefits. I mean, as I said earlier, you know, we knew that we were not going to be subject to the kind of law enforcement rules necessarily that we would. Now, that's not to say that the Seminoles didn't care. They had their own internal law enforcement, fire department, you know, all of these things. And, and I mean, these were professionals. They, and you couldn't ask to deal with anybody better. But they were also normal people who understood if someone's going to throw a party, you know, you want to try to make that party safe, but you want to let the party be a party. That'd be fun. Seminole liaison Pete Gallagher remembered how the team's footprint grew at Big Cypress. They built a, an entire community of um, maybe maybe nine or ten, twelve uh, double-wide trailers. They put in the, uh, behind the stage and put in uh, St. Augustine grass and a uh, swimming pool. Had mailboxes and they had a, a couple of uh, buildings that they they built uh, like a mess hall, uh, where, and they had cooks, uh, uh, gourmet cooks. Uh, in there, uh... Over the holidays, the little on-site village was growing into a town. One new occupant was 24-year-old college graduate Jefferson Waffle. Eventually, he would spend time as a music journalist and work as lighting director for bands including Moe and Humphreys McGee, but at the time was working to get his first footholds in the music industry. I was managing a young band called Uncle Sammy and kind of doing the jam band circuit, doing all the clubs, networking as much as I could, and trying to get my feet wet in the music industry, really. A friend of mine offered me the chance to work because I think they were understaffed being out in the middle of nowhere and, uh, you know, the, the millennium and all. So a friend of mine offered me the chance to work because I think they needed a larger staff than maybe normal, and it was in the middle of nowhere, and it was the time of year that may have been difficult to get staff as much as people in our position would jump at the chance. I remember arriving at night. We arrived on Christmas Eve. I remember feeling really kind of disoriented because every festival I'd ever been to had been during the summer. And so just to be there at Christmas, to be over the holidays and sort of be chilly weather at night anyway. I remember, you know, Christmas lights being up and staff members running around with Santa hats on. It was a week before and it just didn't even look recognizable because they hadn't even fully built the stage yet. They probably had built the foundation, but none of the lights had gone in. It didn't even look like a fish show yet. It was just an empty stage in the middle of a field. I think there was, they were adding a lot of infrastructures like fences and all that kind of thing to make a field look like an event. But uh, I just remember there being this calm before the fish organization showed up. But even if the big cypress site didn't seem transformed to the new observer, Fish's city in a swamp was getting closer to reality. As support staff was massing, Fish's fans and friends were beginning to set out on their own journeys to get to Florida. Though the Y2K bug would prove to be a bust, it still nearly prevented several fans from making it to Big Cypress, including Fish lyricist Tom Marshall. Yeah, I programmed for 18 years, and believe it or not, so I was at AT&T, 
And Y2K almost prevented me from going to Big Cyprus. People were so paranoid about it that entire uh, divisions were created. We had a Y2K division. And uh, an edict came down from above that said, all tech people, vacations are canceled. Meanwhile, I'd put mine in about six months early because I knew something was brewing. My boss came to me. He said something along the lines of, Tom, you know uh, your vacation's been canceled. And I said, well, I don't think so. I put in a long, I put in for it a long time ago. And uh, he said, well, what are you going to do about that? And I said, well, I think my manager's going to have to go to bat for me. And uh, then he walked out. And I guess he went to bat for me because I didn't hear any more about it. We put out a call for Big Cypress Memories, and we'll thank everybody later in the credits. But for now, imagine a giant map with points of light converging on the Everglades. I traveled all the way from Australia to go to Big Cypress. We drove down um, from various places, some from Michigan, some from uh, New York. Uh, We met up in Florida and then did the caravan together to get into the venue. We met at the airport in San Francisco, and then we flew to Florida and met up with our two friends who we met on tour the year before, John and Justin, the pizza guys. We drove from Jersey. I went down with two carloads of people. Actually, I went down with one carload, uh, met some people visiting their grandmother, and we met up with them and took two cars in. Fish called their 1997 festival The Great Went, a reference to a cryptic line in David Lynch's Twin Peaks movie, Fire Walk With Me. But given enough time, say a dozen hours in a car on the way to a faraway fish festival, the phrase could come to refer to those en route. And there were lots of things to talk about, like what the band might do during the seven-hour set, not to mention the touring season that had just concluded and all of its own musical developments, from Trey Anastasio's new keyboard loops to the band's new stage setup or the new batch of songs introduced into the repertoire over the previous three months. At the far end of the trip was the world that Fish built, filled with love and strange art and intention and lots and lots of porta-potties. They were a motif at Fish festivals. At Lemon Wheel in 1998, Lars Fisk had stacked them into pagodas in what they called the Garden of Infinite Pleasantries. But for all the attention put into the festival site, conceptually and practically, there was still the matter of traffic. We were not prepared for that. You know, we had some beef jerky in the car, maybe. We were not. We were flying across the country and just like, we're going to get in and uh, we'll just buy food at the venue because they'll be selling food. Great. We were not ready to stay up all night in in a, in a, a sl- slowly, excruciatingly slowly moving line of cars. I mean, I would fall. I was, I w- we had a convertible. I rented a convertible and we, you know, I would drive five feet and then it would be like, half an hour before anything would happen and I'd fall asleep and then people would honk the horn and people were like, get moving around me because I was moving. And so it would get up a little bit. It's like, it was so crazy. And we're not just talking about any traffic jam. We're talking about an 18 hour or more ordeal in some cases, plus whatever travel time had already gotten the vehicle and its occupants to the starting point of the traffic. Pete Gallagher of the Seminoles remembered its epic scale. Alligator Alley was, was, was a parking lot from one end to the other, from Fort Lauderdale to Naples. And um, uh, it was uh, just, just a larger-than-life event. There's no two ways about it. Among other submissions, we received a digitized version of a cassette recorded by Fishhead Tim Pollock and his friends over the course of their Big Cypress adventure. 
approximately 3 a.m. here and uh, what day is this? 28th now? Tuesday. 3 a.m. We got to Daytona in one day. We never stopped and slept. But shortly, the recording becomes a portal to what was surely the longest day in the history of Alligator Alley. <laughs> Cannot believe this many people like the band of fish. We're like 30 miles away from Big Cypress, not even in the park. And it is totally backed up. I'm talking 30 miles. The lots have been open for seven hours now, and it's still this backed up. 30 miles of traffic. 30 miles. Can you believe that? Dude, that's seriously blowing my mind. If I were fish, I would feel pretty good about myself. And fish, that is John Fishman, definitely had his mind blown by the traffic, though it wasn't without guilt. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that is kind of awesome, too. Right. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, in terms of a statistic, I mean, that that's yeah, that's awesome. You know, the one the one thing that I don't think we ever were able to solve. I don't know if anyone's ever really solved it. Is that traffic in and out thing? That's that's I mean, that was it was one road in and one road out. But people made the best of that. And that was the really the only kind of the only sticking point that you really didn't have any way around and which was the same when we whether we played in limestone or anywhere it's you know you go to these remote places and it's just not a lot of ways in and out we got here at six o'clock it's 11 o'clock we've gone six miles While Big Cypress was just a twinkle in Fish's eye, another idea came to life. In 1997, the band worked with Vermont ice cream slingers Ben and Jerry's to create the now iconic ice cream flavor, Fish Food. Since 1997, a portion of the proceeds from each pint of fish food has gone to the Waterwheel Foundation, Fish's charitable organization. Ben & Jerry's is proud to sponsor this series in commemoration of the band's incredible and unconventional history. To learn more about Ben & Jerry's work with Fish and the Waterwheel Foundation, you can listen to Under the Scales, episodes 41 and 54. As we celebrate 20 years since following the lines going south to Big Cypress, we also say happy anniversary to Fiddlehead Brewing Company, which turns eight this New Year's Eve. The Vermont natives are based in Shelburne, less than 10 miles south of Burlington. For the first time in the summer of 2019, they canned their classic Fiddlehead IPA for fish shows at Great Woods and Spec. Yeah, we still call it Great Woods too. Next time you're in Vermont, be sure to stop by their tasting room for wood-fired pizza and some of the best beer Vermont has to offer. We want to welcome you once again to Thin Air 91.7 FM. Welcome to Big Cypress, Florida, the millennium celebration with fish. Since the Clifford Ball, the band had their own short-range FM radio station to provide pertinent information, air the band sets, and dive into the vault with archivist Kevin Shapiro. 
but mostly the station has been populated by a crew of freeform radio DJs surfing the airwaves with an eclectic explosion of sound that serves as a continuation of Fish's temporary autonomous zone, a way to broadcast it literally into the atmosphere. John Paluska remembered the station's origins. You know, when we first came up with the idea of the radio station, there were two reasons for it, and it was for the Clifford Ball. One was to broadcast the actual sets uh, so that it, no matter where you were, you could hear it. Um, if you were back at the campsite for some reason, you could still tune in. Or, and to communicate logistically with people as they got within. I think the range of the radio station was maybe five miles. It was a, you know, a small, just a local license, so it didn't have a very big range. But the idea was it could be immensely helpful to be able to tune in as soon as you got within proximity and find out how long the traffic wait is and just basically get updates and be able to update people uh, with important information and emergency information and things like that. By the time of Big Cypress, they wanted to expand the station slightly so they could have a larger broadcast area, as promoter Dave Worlin remembered. We wanted to get an FCC license so that we could do that and broadcast beyond just Snake Road, which is about 15 miles long. We wanted to broadcast out as far as we could so we could get to the traffic, you know, out in Alligator Alley. And it was really necessary to be able to communicate to people if there was an emergency, to be able to keep people occupied in between sets, uh, to simulcast sets, um, just to entertain people and just give them a way that they, they could always feel connected. So we reached out I reached out to the FCC to no avail, and this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks, and we're like getting close to the show, and I'm thinking, we've got to be able to do this broadcast. Um, There were huge penalties if you got busted for doing this without a license. Finally, I get through to someone fairly high up at the FCC in Washington, and they said, this is a true story, they said, don't worry, you're going to get your license. The commissioner's son is going to the show. (laughs) And we did. We got the FCC license. The DJ known as Tad Cautious has been part of Fish's station since almost the beginning. Drafted into service from UVM's WRUV. It's always uh, a bit of a military operation, bringing in different things, especially um, at Big Cypress. We're bringing it all in from, from outside. I do remember a contingent of the radio station driving down from Vermont to Florida in a van uh, that was hold, that held a lot of um, LPs from the WRUV record library. That was our sort of go-to is make a big donation to WRUV, the University of Vermont radio station, and then um, just sort of pilfer their record library for our basic, uh, you know, for our own record library. As car after car crossed into listening range, the music and public service announcements continued as the traffic jam inched onwards, including a special edition of From the Archives with Fish archivist Kevin Shapiro. As always, doing double duty, picking out fish cuts, and providing PSAs for incoming concert goers. Um, We want to give you a few reminders. One is, please stay behind the car in front of you if you're outside the concert grounds. Um, I know things may be moving slowly, but... They're moving slowly and surely, so stick in the stick behind the car in front of you and keep moving. We also want everybody to be very careful of pedestrians and um, any other obstacles that might present themselves in front of your vehicles. 
Also, please stay inside your vehicles, not on top, uh, beside, or anything along those lines. I want to make sure everybody comes in safely and smoothly so we can all celebrate the new year together. Inside the site, preparation continued as the traffic jam blazed on. For runners like Jefferson Waffle, that meant leaving the site, too. The biggest challenge for the transportation department was the fact that, by design, the site was kind of out in the middle of nowhere. You know, fish wanted to be as far away from civilization as they could, but we needed to get supplies in. So if we needed more duct tape, we had to go to the closest Walmart, which might have been about 45 minutes away, I think. Or the biggest thing was transporting staff. So they were all arriving, you know, anywhere between, like, December 27th and the 29th. I remember going to pick up one of the caterers. I remember going to pick up one of the backline guys. And then you're in a car with someone for like an hour and 15 minutes, which is a really interesting way to get to know someone. I was so fascinated by that whole lifestyle. Margie Blee of Great Northeast Productions remembered a unique bit of logistics for Big Cypress. We had to actually have a hotel room for them um, closer into the city and run two sets of runners so that basically when we needed something, somebody would just go get it and they would be ready, and then they would come back, and then we would send a runner from the site. What I remember is it being very, very flat and very straight. And at the end of the road, or what appeared to be the end of the road, on the horizon were two cop cars that were set up as a roadblock. And I just kept thinking, oh, those cop cars are like a mile away, and I'll just, you know, I'll be there, and I'll take a left, and then I'll be back. And my sense of distance was just so thrown off because of how big it was. So I just remember it taking like 45 minutes to get to the cop cars, but the visibility was such that I saw those lights on the horizon, and that was kind of like the beacon to get home, the beacon of light. But in the days before the concert started, the scene on Alligator Alley was the main story. Uh, that entire traffic jam was full of, of laughs and throwing Frisbees and drinking beers and, and doing what else, whatever else we um, wanted to do to have fun at, the, at that point in time. We've been here for 13 and a half hours. We have moved... We're one-tenth of a mile under 15 miles. We've moved 15 miles in 13 and a half hours. We got to Alligator Alley, and I remember the traffic. And it was insane. So we were uh, pretty excited and really couldn't contain ourselves in the car. So we got out of the car, me and Imbal, and we started walking and talking into people uh, in the line. We were dancing half the time, we were just meeting people and having a great time, harnessing all of the arrival energy. Um, I think we were actually looking for alligators too. We had walkie-talkies to stay in touch. It was all people that were linked by our uh, fish fan email group at the University of Michigan. And we were caravanning together and after probably three or four hours in the traffic jam, uh, the guys that were in the lead who were not necessarily our closest friends and decided that they wanted to start driving on the shoulder to bypass the traffic. And uh, the, the, the moral group of us in, in the car I was in were pretty firmly against that. But at some point, they just decided to do it. So we ended up following them. And I would guess for probably 10 minutes, drove along the shoulder. Um, and it ended up shaving two hours off of our traffic journey. Um, I think most people sat in the traffic jam for 12 hours. We were in it for 10. Um, but I've, I, have, I have strong moral reservations about doing that even to this day. It's now 10.30. We're still sitting in traffic. 10.30. We got here at 6 last night. That makes 16 and a half hours. It took us 16 and a half hours to get from Menor to Daytona Beach. 
Back to Lynn Gordon with the Channel 7 News team. Did you have any idea about this? No. What is, what is it? it? It's a concert uh, for the millennium, a group called Fish. Oh, geez. And obviously that woman not too happy. A lot of people getting stuck in this mess, having no idea what was going on out here uh, this upcoming New Year's weekend. We're also getting word uh, just a few moments ago there was another accident at mile marker 47, and we understand that that involved a fatality. So obviously a very dangerous situation out here. Three accidents so far, one fatality that we know of. The traffic jam sucked. It was also the source of the single fatality surrounding the festival. In the late afternoon of Wednesday the 29th, when a man riding on the top of an RV fell off and under its wheels. The obvious reason for the traffic was the fact that more than 70,000 people in an estimated 30,000 cars were headed down a small road to a single destination. But there were other holdups. Fish manager John Paluska remembered the frustration of dealing with local police. Obviously, the most glaring issue with Big Cypress was the monumental traffic jam that happened as people were trying to enter the festival. And this underscores one of the great challenges of producing events. And I can think all the way back to a sort of micro version of this uh, many years Oh, no, I guess it wasn't many years earlier, many years earlier from now, but actually it was only, I guess, three years before Big Cypress or so, maybe four, uh, three and a half. We played Red Rocks in 1996. We did four nights there. We, we did this elaborate amount of planning. We traveled there. We met with the local sheriff. We met with all the local security people, the promoter, the fire department, had a very elaborate plan, knowing full well, we were, in that case, we were going to have a lot of people showing up without tickets since the venue was small and it's a highly sought after ticket. We thought we had a very tight plan in place and as soon as things started to unfold before the first show, the sheriff basically just said, sorry, I'm doing this my way and all the planning got thrown out the window and it ended up being a complete disaster because the guy didn't know what he was doing but decided he did. Um, And some version of, the reason I'm bringing that up is because some version of that happened at Big Cypress where ultimately we were at the mercy of the state police. And I don't remember exactly why there was such a bottleneck at the turn from Alligator Alley heading up the road to the Big Cypress Seminole Reservation, but... There was a bottleneck point, and it may have involved vehicle checks. I don't remember what the exact slowdown was, but I do remember flying over in a helicopter, observing it, being very clear what the problem was, and begging them to change how they were approaching things to try to ease the traffic jam and ultimately just being rebuffed and being told, this is how we're doing things. Promoter Dave Worlin remembers the specifics of what happened at Big Cypress. You know, we did our due diligence. This was not our first rodeo. Um, as we always do, we reached out to all the local law enforcement, you know, in this case, outside of the reservation. You know, you had there were a number of, of, of different entities. You had Florida Highway Patrol. You had sheriff's offices on each end of Alligator Alley, you know, on the Naples end and on, on the Fort Lauderdale end. You had... Um, you know, the, the internal police at, at, at the Seminole law enforcement. We reached out to everybody, and we said, look, this is what's going to happen. 
This is the amount of vehicles that we anticipate. This is when we anticipate they're going to come and when they're going to leave. And we recommend that you suspend the toll booths at both ends of Alligator Alley during the load-in and load-out of the, of the attendees. And we went and spent a lot of money um, uh, renting electronic message boards that would give people information on, the, on Alligator Alley, you know, and letting people know what's going on. Um, so two things happened uh, that I think were responsible for the traffic jam. You know, the first thing is that uh, I think that law enforcement simply, not all of them, but enough of them simply didn't believe that the numbers we're telling them could possibly be real. Because fish wasn't a huge deal in Florida. You know, they were a little bit of a deal, you know, but they, no one expected close to 100,000 people, right? Um, it, I mean, we did, <laughs> but law enforcement didn't, so they didn't believe us, didn't take us seriously. Um, until the backup became unmanageable, then they took us seriously. Later on, the Seminole Tribune confirmed the disbelief of local law enforcement. It quoted one anonymous deputy from Hendry County as saying, if it had been the Rolling Stones, we would have been more prepared. And then they finally suspended the tolls. But by that time, it, did, it didn't really help. In fact, it made things worse because now the cars are flowing faster through the toll booths, but they're getting stuck at a pinch point. And that was the second problem, and that was the biggest problem. The pinch point was at the exit off of Alligator Alley onto Snake Road. Fish employee Beth Montori Rolls made it onto the site with the organization. But her future husband hadn't been so lucky. The good news was that they had their first cell phones. The bad news was that reception on Alligator Alley left much to be desired. Our cell phones finally connected really early in the morning, like 6.30 in the morning or something like that. He was, he was very jovial about it. He was having a good time out there. I mean, it must have been like 5 o'clock in the morning. It was really early. He said, David can tell this story better than I can. He said, yeah, I'm stuck out here. Traffic hasn't moved in like two, three hours. And I was like, what? And I went over to John Langenstein, our head of security, and said, uh, John, I just talked to David. He says he's stuck out on the highway and the traffic hasn't moved in forever. And John was like, that's, what are you talking about? People have been coming in all night. He's in the wrong lane. So I called David back and got him again and said, David, you're in the wrong lane. John says you need to get into the other lane. And David said, he literally said to me, John needs to get his head out of his ass because that is not what's going on out here. And so then the next thing I know, John says, you know, John comes over to me, we're going up in the helicopter, give me David's cell phone number. And John said, David, you know, let me know when you see the helicopter. Dave Worland was in the helicopter too. I went up in a police helicopter to look at what was going on on Snake Road. And it was very clear that traffic was flowing all the way up to the gas station, which is just off the exit at Snake Road, which is controlled by the Miksuki. Seminole liaison Pete Gallagher remembered the police as the cause of the traffic jam as well, but not the Florida police. No, but one of the problems was is, uh, they, the, the Miksuki tribe, that's the only other uh, federally recognized tribe in Florida, the Miksuki tri- uh, tribe of Florida Indians is their official name. They're an offshoot of the Seminoles, uh, uh, but they're a separate tribe. So they operated separately from the Seminoles. They have their own casino. And um, they were stopping cars. See, their land, they, they owned the land where the intersection was uh, off of Alligator Alley. There's a road called Snake Road. 
it, it, uh, it's, it, it's it, from the air. It looks like a snake, you know. And uh, that that the first couple miles of that road are in the uh, Miccosukee lands, and then the Seminole lands start after that. And so they they were stopping each car and, and uh, um, uh, looking for drugs and doing all kinds of stuff like that, you know. And the, and uh, the chief had said from the very beginning that he didn't want. Uh, the, the Seminoles had both tribes had their own police department, and uh, but, but the Seminoles did not want to have any trouble. Uh, they didn't want to get anyone busted for uh, uh, pot or anything like that. They didn't they w- didn't want to see anybody setting up a booth and openly selling it or anything. But uh, um, but but people were walking around smoking the whole time. It didn't matter. But the Mikasukis were stopping and and and. And so it caused the the, uh, the the stop caused a huge traffic jam all the way back into Fort Lauderdale in Miami. Once I got back to the to the Big Cypress Reservation, once I got out of the helicopter, I was told that the Mikasuki wanted to meet with me up at the gas station to talk. Okay, so I went there with with the police, a couple of my associates, um, and I met with them. Uh, <laughs> So they demanded a payoff. They wanted a very large sum of money to cease their activities. That's why I suspect that this whole thing was because they were jealous and they wanted to cash in where, where, where the big Cypress Seminoles were making money from this event and they weren't. So I refused. And I refused because that, to me this was extortion, plain and simple. And I said it was obvious to everyone that they were the cause of this epic traffic jam and that Great Northeast Productions and Fish would just simply not submit to this outrageous ultimatum. And the reason why I did it was in part because I knew if we rolled over this early on, remember this is the 29th, this is like bloating in, this we're way before the, all, everything, all the festivities and the, the bands playing and all that, it's way before that, all right? I knew if we rolled over that early on, this is going to show weakness, and that could easily cost us way, way, way more money over the ensuing days. I went up in the helicopter and saw what was going on, and I, I called the chief. His name is James Billy, and uh, we we flew up and landed right there where the where the roadblock was. There's a there was a uh, gas station there. It's the only gas station on that whole Alligator Alley, and. Um, and they had their patrol cars out there, and they were they were letting these cars go go by one by one. And the chief took the the other chief. Uh, his name was Billy Cypress. And the two chiefs went walking, and I guess uh, Chief Billy read him some sort of a riot act because he came back and just waved his cops off and, and took him out of town, and you never saw him again. And so it was that Chief Jim Billy dispatched with the traffic jam in the same way that he once wrestled alligators, swamp panthers, and the Supreme Court. Believe it if you need it, as someone once wrote. But yeah, that was a big bummer because people were running. People were stuck in traffic for so long; they were running out of gas, which compounded the problem. People were, you know, dehydrated. They, you know, they just didn't have supplies. They weren't anticipating being stuck in their cars on a fairly hot highway for that long. Compounded by the fact that you had alligators in the in the ditch along the side of it. It was just. It was. This is a problem with doing our festivals in remote locations: is that the people. You know, the local authorities had zero 
experience with any kind of large-scale event, much less something of this magnitude, with the kind of audience and all of the extra uh, colors, shall we say, that came along with them. You never wish these things, and I'm not proud of it, but at some level, you know, a monumental traffic jam at some level adds to the to the lore of the event and sort of gives it a, a certain mystique that makes it seem like it was an even bigger deal, you know, sort of going back to, say, Woodstock or something like that, where people just abandoned their cars and headed to the, to the uh, which happened a big, at uh, Coventry, actually. <laughs> back in the traffic jam, the sounds of thin air radio continued to soothe and welcome concert goers, including Scott Bernstein, now an editor at Jambase. I had so much nervous energy running through me that I actually had a panic attack about six hours in. And thankfully, Fish provided a radio station, uh, um, the, the forerunner of the bunny. And one of the shows that they played was from the archives. And I'll never forget, I was going through this crazy panic attack. I just wanted to get out of the car. I just, I, I was doubting my decision to go. And Kevin played this amazing sound check from just a few months earlier that Fish played in, in New Mexico, where they talked about Jewgrass and um, talked about uh, David Zizek Steinberg being an Aggie and said the timer was an Aggie too. And I just loved this jam so much. And it brought such a huge smile to my face that at that point, I knew everything was going to be okay. I want to note, once again, a few things about the safety situation and also welcome a guest to Thin Air from the Archives, Mr. Dickie Scotland, Richard Glasgow, our tour manager. Kevin, how you doing? Thanks for having me at Thin Air Radio tonight. We're going to visit a, uh, we're going to jump forward here from 1991 to 1999, this year. Um... In Las Cruces, New Mexico, which Dickie may have a thing or two to say about. Well, Kevin, that's where I went to college, and uh, you know we had an amazing sound check that day. I'll let you take it from there. At Of course, there was a lot of traffic getting into uh, the venue, um, and some people did not necessarily plan accordingly uh, for the bumper-to-bumper traffic getting in, and as my friend uh, was did not have a full tank of gas um, and did not expect to be sitting for hours uh, on Alligator Alley, right, with... Um, and bumper-to-bumper traffic overnight. And uh, I was behind him, and he said, uh, I'm not going to have enough gas to get in. So he turned off his engine, put the car in neutral, uh, and I literally, in my car, pushed him uh, down the, you know, 
you know, fugitives at a time, of course, in our traffic there, um, bumper to bumper, pushing him you know, along till he got close to the venue when he drove in. Let's send it back to Lynn Gordon on Alligator Alley. You saw me about an hour ago, and traffic was backed up all the way to Weston. It is someone cleared up, but we understand beyond the toll plaza, it is still backed up. And we just talked to our other crew who left here where we are about an hour ago. They have only gone three miles in the past hour. They have not even made it to the Alligator Alley toll plaza as yet. Traffic is expected to be backed up until Friday, so you might want to try to avoid Alligator Alley, if possible, altogether. We're live in West Broward. I'm Lynn Gordon, 7 News. Once fans made it through the toll booths after however many hours in traffic, they reached their next death-defying challenge, Snake Road. Promoter Dave Worland remembers. Snake Road is bordered by canals, by a canal. And the canal is filled with all kinds of nasty stuff, including alligators. Uh, and And it's not lit. It's very, very dark there at night. So one of our concerns was as people were transiting that road, that they might go off that road and into, uh, because there's no guardrails, into a canal. So we went out at some expense and we purchased reflectors, road reflectors, none of which had been ever installed in that road, uh, and had them put in the entire length of the road up to the entrance to Big Cypress to the to the uh, to the reservation. So we finally made it off of Alligator Alley onto the exit ramp. We get to the top of the the exit ramp and they stop us. And I don't know what the situation was, but for probably ten or fifteen minutes, they let no one off of the exit ramp going in either direction. Um, and then when they started traffic moving again, we were the first car that went. So the entire drive between Alligator Alley and the entrance to the festival grounds, which I guess was the entrance to the reservations. Uh, or sorry, to the to the Indian Reservation, we were the the front of a pack of probably 20 or 30 cars, but it was complete p- pitch blackness around us, except for the headlights behind us. There was nothing in front of us, so our headlights were illuminating this deserted, foggy, misty stretch of Swamp Highway. And all I remember is that every probably... 100, 200 feet or so, a random wook would just appear out of the darkness, wandering along the side of the road with their finger up in the air. And it was absolutely terrifying, Um, but kind of a nice intro into the weekend. It was appropriately spooky. We never updated the tape here when we got here. It was 12.30, I think. It took us 17 hours to get in. The camp's really cool. Wait, from six to... It's very big. It's 17. Okay. Something. And the camp's cool. It's very large. There are two hot air balloons, a Ferris wheel, and like a weird kind of Ferris wheel. We drove down each row, and we were handing out beer. We were pouring champagne in people's mouths. And I remember the woman driving was shouting, hot snakes, <laughs> so we didn't hit anybody. But we went down row after row, giving out booze and Mardi Gras necklaces. And that's how we arrived. That was uh, pretty much our arrival. I'm still convinced that there's a wook out there that got eaten by an alligator somewhere between the highway and the entrance to the, um, the, entrance to the festival. Thanks for listening to After Midnight, Fish's Big Cypress Festival. In episode three, We'll explore the concert site and get ready for the band's epic midnight set.
After Midnight, Fish at Big Cypress is produced by Osiris Media. Executive producers are RJB and Tom Marshall. After Midnight was produced, edited, and mixed by Matt Dwyer. Written and narrated by me, Jesse Jarno. Production assistance from Christina Collins. Interviews and production assistance from Jefferson Waffle. Art by Mark Dowd. Music by Amar Sastry. Thanks to Fish, Red Light Management, and to all interviewees. Thanks to the fans who submitted their stories, including Stephen Grip, Patrick Hickey, Mark Blitz, Philip Schuster, Bethany Austin, Greg Netzarim, Tano, Jen Chadbourne, Josh Silverman, Mike Palmer, Dylan Behan, Rock, Scott King, and Tim Pollock. Until next time. Big Cypress is a sovereign nation, which allowed festival attendees and organizers to experience this event in a setting outside the dominion of the U.S. But eventually, everyone had to head back to reality. We're lucky that in the United States, we have Headcount to help make sure festival and concert goers are in the know about how to be politically active and support the causes they stand for. Headcount is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that works to promote participation and democracy through the power of music. Headcount stages voter registration drives at live music events and runs the Participation Row interactive areas at festivals, through which they have raised over $1 million for various causes and registered over 600,000 voters. Since 2004, Headcount has helped register voters at fish shows. Next time you go to a show, say hi to Headcount and learn more or register to vote at headcount.org. Backline is the music industry's mental health and wellness resource hub. Launched in 2019, Backline aims to give music industry professionals and their families quick and easy access to mental health and wellness resources. We've lost so many amazing artists too early, and we're glad that organizations like Backline are here to help connect artists and their families with professionals who can help them find the right resources for them. They've already forged amazing partnerships with leading music-related organizations, and we're happy to support their work. Check them out at backline.care.